Romans chapter 15. We're going to cover the first 13 verses. Um, while you're getting there, um, you know, I'm grateful. There's a lot of things I'm grateful for. Uh, I'm grateful that I get to be the pastor here. One of the things that uh, sticks out to me is that in every day of pretty much everybody's life, there's a whole lot of things that you probably don't want to do, but you have to do them anyway. Well, being the pastor here is not in that list. I really love being here. I'm grateful that I am able to be here. I'm grateful for a beautiful day for us to come to worship. I'm grateful that I can say a sentence without breaking down and coughing. Um, when you think about the gifts that God gives you, sometimes you think, you know what, um, I would like something else. But after you, you've had a little something, you're like, I'm just glad that I don't have to cough anymore. It's a wonderful thing when, when God shows you just how much you have to be thankful for. Um, another thing that I'm grateful for is I'm about to preach a sermon on unity within the church. And I think we are on that road. Whereas there are churches and there have been churches that I've been a part of that were not on that road at all. I believe we're on that road, and as we look at the instructions that Paul's giving us, I think that we are in a place where we can continue to do what Paul is saying instead of, oh, we've got to change everything because we hate each other. We're not there, and I praise the Lord for that. I'm glad that we are in a place where we can continue to strive forward instead of at ground zero. And so that's where we are this morning. You know, the last several weeks we've been discussing the relationship between the people that are weak in the faith and the people that are strong in the faith. And Paul has talked about that, and he's explained that, that when we try to put these undue regulations or, or laws to keep us from breaking some law or, or, or doing something that, that, that the Bible doesn't say, well, that would be weak in the faith. He's saying that, that in that case, you're not trusting the freedom that Christ has given you. And then there are people who are strong in the faith, people that know that God has made you free and has set you free for the purpose of serving Him and loving Him. But he has also um, went on to, to, to state clearly, we are free in Christ, but we know that we can't use that freedom to cause another brother or sister in Christ to stumble. We know that we're not able to do that. And so there is this balance that exists where things are, are free to us and things are, are, are good for us, but at the same time we can't cause another brother or sister to stumble. And he had in mind things like meat, um, because there were a lot of questions about meat in the first century, especially the church. Can we eat pork? Because that was a thing that, they, that the Jews could not eat. Um, what about food that has been sacrificed to idols? Things that, that are sometimes within your control and sometimes outside of your control. What can we do there? What about special days? You know, the Gentiles came and, and they had their own special days but they didn't necessarily feel a connection to the Hebrew calendar and the different religious days that they had. And so what about those things? And so there were other things along those same lines, but what Paul is saying is that God has made us free. We can worship Him. We can serve Him. There are commands that He's given us, and then everything else would be a conviction, and we obey the convictions that He's put on our hearts. And we don't judge others because they have different convictions. And we certainly don't use our freedom knowing that it's going to cause somebody to stumble. In that case, we would abstain from that. And so what Paul said, for example, is that he knows all things are clean, but he would rather never eat meat again than cause a brother or sister to stumble. And so that is, that is where he's been. And you would say, well, why so much emphasis? Why so much work is Paul putting into you know, the, the weak and the strong and, and what you can eat and, 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 and how we relate to one another. 
Well, in this passage, Paul gets to the heart of his conversation of the strong and weak as he makes a plea for Christian unity. And so that is what we understand to be the reason for the strong and the weak and the explanation there and how we are to live in harmony is so that we can have unity. So the sermon in a sentence is this. Believers must live in cooperation so that we can be unified in our hope, which is Christ Jesus. Okay, so let's go through this passage here. Uh, We're just reading the first 13 verses. So Matthew, um, not Matthew, uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 1 through 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Lest each of us please his neighbor for his good, or let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. All right, so let's get into this. The first part we're going to see is the example of Christ, because when we talk about living in harmony, living in unity, how do you get that done? Well, Jesus left us an example, and so that's what we're going to look at first, is the example that Jesus gave us. But before we dig into that, let's just have a brief discussion about the strong and weak Christians, Um, and and let's, let's kind of think about ourselves just a little bit. I think it's important... We've been going through this for a couple of weeks, so I think it's important that we kind of establish some awareness about who we are, where we are, uh, before we go a little bit deeper. Um, So as we read this passage, the first thing I say is that we should approach it with humility concerning our understanding, especially of ourselves. Always read the Bible humbly, letting it instruct you. Don't, Don't read the Bible saying, well, let me see what I can find against this other person, or let me see how this is speaking to the Gentiles, the outcasts, the reprobates, whatever. Let's make sure that we're letting this speak to our heart as much as we are to to hear it for somebody else. None of us are going to be strong in every area. So you might say, well, I'm strong of faith. I believe in the freedom that Christ has given me. None of us are going to be strong in every area. There's going to be things where we we see things that, that maybe other people don't see. So we need to remember that yes, we might be strong in some areas, and you may be sitting here saying, well, I'm of the strong faith. I don't believe that Jesus has put a bunch of regulations and rules. I'm not a legalist. 
but then there may be some area that you are. And so we need to realize that we need to, to not just consider ourselves, well, we're the strong. Um, and if we're sitting here saying, well, we're the weak, then, then you're probably not weak everywhere. The fact that you're saying that you're the weak might mean that you have more humility. Don't want to get you proud about your humility. It kind of defeats the purpose. But uh, the idea is that God is working in each of us. And he is showing us where we are and moving us forward. So we need to be aware of those things. Our aim is to grow strong, but always remember to help those around us. And so we have to be sensitive of that. There will certainly be times that we find ourselves in need of help. And if we have helped others, there's a better chance that we can receive help. And so that brings us to our first bold point. Believers show grace to each other because we have received grace. As we have grown up, we have helped others. We have been helped by others, and that is the relationship that we're supposed to have. So the first time someone makes a mistake, the first time somebody falls, the first time somebody does something they're not supposed to do, are we supposed to just kick them out of the church and, and, and consider them you know, lost and delivered over to destruction? No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us to show grace. In fact, these first words, we who are strong, classify yourselves, Paul puts himself with the strong, but of course he does. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the fallings or the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So if you would put yourself in the strong category, we've got to help those who would be in that weak category. Now, keep in mind, he's not necessarily referring to things that are sinful. He's referring to things that are within the realm of Christian liberty. And so if you have someone that, that, that you know they got a lot of hang-ups. They got a lot of things that they don't think is right, that don't think should be done that way, that they just have a whole lot of hang-ups. And, and you were over here saying, you know what, Jesus has freed us from those kinds of things. Jesus has set us free from those kinds of things. Well, then, then you've got to live in an understanding way with that person. You've got to show them grace, and you've got to help them. Now, if there's a way that you can help them to see different things, then that will help but we've got to live in an understanding way with them and show them grace, be patient with them, because somebody showed us grace and was patient with us as well. We know that to be true. So those who are strong, he uses the word obligation. We have the obligation to help and in some cases even tolerate the practices of the weak. And so if you are around someone that says, hey, I, it, it's my faith, I believe that Jesus said we can never have, and then, and then insert anything. Um, we'll say pork chops. Well, I'm telling you, a pork chop on the grill, if you do it right, you put some Lowry's, that is amazing. And I know now maybe you're hungry if you like that. But if you're around somebody that says, oh, we can't have that, we, we can't do that, we just can't have that, well, what would you do? Go to Winn-Dixie and get the family pack of pork chops and say, here, let me just show you how this is done. No, we would be understanding about that. We would be patient about that. And that's actually almost exactly what Paul's talking about because remember, he was dealing with Jews and Gentiles and that really becomes abundantly clear here. And so how would we minister to a person that, that has maybe different things and it could be cultural, um, it, it, it could be you know, in their background, maybe coming from a different religion or a different place, it could be any number of things. But how would you handle that? We would handle that with understanding. We would handle that with grace. So... Let's kind of bring it to a little bit more modern. So if you're witnessing to somebody and you're saying, you know what, <clears throat> let's say somebody was a part of a, a whole different kind of church um, and, and, you're, and you're trying to invite them and bring them into our church, but their church does things radically differently. How would you do that? 
would you say, hey, this is the right way. The way we do it is the right way. And you just got to accept the fact that your church was doing it wrong all the time. No, that's not how you would do it. You would say, hey, look, we're a little different. We do things a little different than, than maybe your church did. Um, but we're not condemning the way your church did it. This is just the way that we are. That way, there's, a, there's some grace there. There's some understanding. There's some patience being shown. That is the way to reach people. That is the way to create a kind of unity that God is working for. And so, however, however we have to think about it, we have to realize that whatever freedom, whatever grace, whatever, whatever um, strength that God has given us, we've got to use that for His glory. We should never take advantage of the things that God has given us. That's not why He gave it to us. And so, let's, let's look a little bit further. Um, we have to remember the context, um, you know, because he was saying the weak may believe that Christians should abstain from certain foods or certain practices. The strong must be careful to live in a way that does not cause the weak to stumble. That's our obligation and our responsibility that we don't cause people to stumble because they're too busy looking at what we're doing and having a problem with it. And so understand what this is saying because this is, this is tough. And this is not the American way to think, but I might have to abstain from doing something that, that I know God approves of because it might harm someone else. That could be difficult. It's not the American way. Remember, we're the, the just do it, you know, uh, generation. But, but I might have to edit the way that I live my life so that it doesn't trouble someone else. Now, well, we have to be pretty smart about that. that. That requires a lot of care and concern and forethought because we can't just go off and do whatever we think. So if you're talking to someone and, and, and a touchy subject comes up, and you know the touchy subjects, you know the things where people get defensive or all of a sudden it's not a friendly conversation anymore, how do we go? How do we proceed? Do we proceed to say, well, I am right and you are wrong and, and that's just the way of it? Or do we show some grace and maybe we realize, okay, so that's a sensitive subject. Maybe we can come back some other time and we move on from that. Maybe we do that. And, you know, without getting into the weeds of it, you know, this is Alabama. And so we're kind of split down the middle. There are Alabama fans and there are Auburn fans. Well, a lot of people are really good natured about that. And they'll, they'll take a joke back and forth. But then some people can't. If you run into somebody that cannot take a joke, if they're the kinds of people that you would read about in the paper, well, Alabama beat Auburn, so this person shot this person, literally happened a few years ago. If you, have, if you are that kind of person or you run into that kind of person, maybe you don't joke with them about that. You know, you don't, you don't tell them things that, that would upset them. You know, it just depends on the person. It depends on the situation. But we have to be smart about that so that we can have the kind of unity God is calling us to have. So the strong are permitted to exercise our freedoms. God's not saying, and Paul's not saying, you can never have your freedoms. That's not what he's saying at all. He's just saying that we've got to be responsible and take care for how it's going to affect other people. So we should always be aware of how our actions are going to affect other people, because that's what he says there at the very end. Um, he, he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So that doesn't mean that you can never do anything that you want to do. That just means that don't do it in such a way that it harms other people, that it gives a stumbling block to other people. So you have to do with that what you see fit. But the, the Lord will lead you in that kind of behavior if we are careful. So 
He goes on to say, um, number uh, verse 2, he says, Let each of us please our neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. So he's telling us to act selflessly, and we should act selflessly because Jesus left that example for us. So what's the path to unity? It is not the selfish imposing of my way or the highway. That is not the way to unity. That is the way to tyranny. Ultimately, that's, that's, that's the way to death. But when we are selfless, when we don't insist on our own way, when we are not, when we're not pushing towards you know, our own thing, but we are taking on the troubles, the problems, the burdens of other people, that's where we find true unity. And Jesus left us that example. <coughs> now I want you to imagine a world in which each person was going out of their way to serve someone else. Imagine that world. Each person going way out of their way just to be a servant to someone else. Think about how peaceful that would be. I mean, we're all trying to love our neighbor more than our neighbor loves us. It's a competition almost. Just imagine what that would look like. Think of the joy and harmony that would be in that world. And let me tell you, the church is obligated to exist in that very state. Like now, not in heaven, like now. We are supposed to be serving each other so much that everyone feels like, well, I must be important because they're serving me. And, and, and everyone else has the same mentality where we're going out of our way to help each other, to show kindness, to say that kind word when it needs to be said, to be welcoming, to, to be understanding. That is where the church is obligated to be at all times. That's the state that we're obligated to be in. And so you might say, well, let's self-evaluate. Are we there yet? Well, I think we're on the road. Uh, there's always more to improve, but we have to think about how we can be like what he's saying, where we're always putting ourselves last, putting someone else first, just like Jesus did. Jesus didn't take time for himself. When we read the scriptures, and, and sometimes people misinterpret this, sometimes Jesus went to be by himself to pray. That wasn't for him. That was part of his obligation as a Christian, or not as a Christian, he was Christ, but his obligation as his relationship to God. That was not a selfish act. That was a faithful act. And so, should you take time to, to, to build your own spiritual strength? Absolutely. If you don't take care, then you will slip back. You will backslide. But the thing that we have to remember is that when we are around others, we can be serving others. And if they are serving us as well, that creates the kind of joy. That creates the kind of harmony. That creates the atmosphere that's needed for the big point that Paul is about to make. So, we should be willing to serve to the same degree that Jesus served. Paul reminds us that the scriptures, the Old Testament, they all still apply. Um, he's not doing away with those. <coughs> they give us both instruction and hope. So think about it like this. Paul has made this big, long discussion about things that aren't commands. We definitely make sure that we're all obeying the commands. Before we can ever have any discussion about the freedom that we do have, we need to make sure that we're obeying the commands that God has clearly given us. And so if we obey the commands that God has freely given us, then we have that conversation about the freedom that he has now granted us, that Jesus won for us on the cross. Then we have 
the kind of conversation, we have the kind of environment that we're actually looking for. So obedience to the scriptures first. So when we live according to the scriptures, we can live in such harmony that we will glorify God with one voice. So look what he says there in verse uh, 6. He says, and together, or that together, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of your Lord Jesus Christ. Why unity? Why unity? So we've talked about the strong and the weak. Well, why? So that we can have unity. So if, we, if the strong and the weak know how to live with each other, showing grace, showing compassion, being considerate, uh, being selfless, then that creates unity. Why do we need unity? So that we can glorify God. This is not so that nobody's feelings will get hurt. This is not so that we can claim that we have the best church. This is not for any reason other than so that we can glorify God. That's the purpose. That's what he is revealing here. So Paul's prayer that he puts in verse 7, therefore, um, uh, welcome one... No, 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 I think I'm... No, his prayer is in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in one accord with Christ Jesus, that, verse 6, that together you may be with one voice glorify God the Father, God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that prayer is that we will obey the Scriptures uh, and our lives will work together to create that one unified sacrifice of praise to the Lord. That's what we're supposed to be doing is, is living in such harmony. Remember, harmony is not all the same notes. Harmony is not unison. Harmony is just it works together. And that is what a church is supposed to be. We're all going to be doing different things. We're going to have different roles in life. There's going to be diversity all the way around. And, and we talked about that already. So, so there's going to be that diversity, but there's going to be harmony because we together make that one voice that glorifies God. That's the point of it. Obeying Scripture where Scripture speaks, being considerate where Scripture does not speak, brings us into that place of unity where we can glorify God together. We must remember that it is only under the authority of Christ and Scripture that we can have this kind of unity. Is there peace that is not of God? Yes. Is there unity that is not of God? Yes. When churches and Christians compromise on what God has clearly stated, they may have unity. They may even have peace among each other. But that is not of God. That this doesn't mean that we accept sin. Please don't misunderstand what Paul's saying. With the strong and the weak, both are Christians. Both are living according to the Word of God. One understands that God has made them free, and the other understands that they'd better not sin. Either way you look at it, there is obedience to God's Word there. There is no compromise to what God has actually said. What He has revealed is right and wrong. There's no compromise there. This is in those areas where he hasn't necessarily spoken or at least laid down a, a, a law. So people can agree with sins in church. It has happened. It has happened over and over again. It happens in, the, in what you would call the good churches. It happens in, in the cantankerous churches. It happens in all the churches in between. It happens that churches accept and agree with and, and, and move on from sin without dealing with it. That happens. And it might create a unity. Some people may say, well, just for unity's sake, we're going to accept this. That's not the real unity. That's not godly unity. And so we need to be very aware of that, that it comes through obedience to Scripture. We are a people set apart. We're called holy, and that's what that means, to be set apart. We are a people set apart, 
and only the good unity that we will find when we are submitting to God and each other is the kind of unity we should seek. If someone, and, and I can't even imagine this, but if someone was in the church advocating for sin, we would not be seeking unity in that moment. That would be a moment where we would confront that. We would deal with that. We would get everybody back on the same page, which is a page of Scripture, then we can move forward. But that is never, compromise of the Word of God is never something that we should do. <clears throat> now look at the last sentence here of this, this part of it, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We should always be welcoming and show hospitality because Jesus has done the same for us. Now, I don't live in Vincent, so I may not know the names of people, um, but every town is the same. There could be somebody that, from the community that walked in these doors right now and everybody's mouth would fall open. Can't believe he came to church. And y'all probably have a name already. Bing, I know who you're talking about. I don't know who I'm talking about, but you do. If that person walked in, all of us like, oh, I can't believe they came to church. So what, what is our response supposed to be in that case? Well, let me tell you this, that of all the things you know about that person, whoever that person is, of all the things you know about that person, all of their sins, all of their failings and shortcomings, that is nothing compared to what God knew about you when he accepted you. Nothing. But for the grace of God, such were some of we. We have to realize that there was nothing good about us when Jesus saved us. There was no redeeming quality about us. There was no original standing with us except that of condemnation. Jesus saved us when there was nothing else that could save us. So it doesn't matter where someone comes from. It doesn't matter their history in life. It doesn't matter how bad we think they have been. If they are coming to seek Jesus, we are welcoming. We are opening our arms and receiving them just as Jesus received us. That's the point. That's the point that he's making there with this welcoming. Now, the last verse here, this, this, this thing, the welcoming, it's probably setting up for verse 8 through 13 where he's going to be talking uh, about, about where the, what this unity really means, um, but it definitely applies here. Um, there are probably churches out there, um, if you've ever heard of those us four and no more, there are probably churches that think they've struck harmony and they don't want anyone coming in and changing things. They don't want new things to happen. They don't want change to occur. They want everything to stay the same because we've already got this figured out. I think this verse fits to say no. We welcome just like Jesus welcomed. Because each individual that comes, it's new, they're just adding another note to that voice that is in one voice singing of the glory of God. That's what we're supposed to do. So each new believer that God brings to the church is just a new note in the worship that we are singing to Him. So let's look at the second part here, verse 8 through verse 13. Um, and this is our hope in Christ. So anybody that reads the New Testament, I believe they're going to come away with the impression that all believers are supposed to be servants. If you were to just sit down 
And I don't know if you could do it in an afternoon. You might could, but you certainly could do it in a week. If you just kind of made yourself read the whole New Testament, I bet you could do it in a week. And think about what a week that would be. You'd come away with some impressions, but I think the most significant impression you'd come away with is that we as believers are supposed to be servants. We have to be serving one another. Jesus left us that example. We were servant. He was a servant. We are to be servants. Um, in this preceding passages here that we've been looking at with the strong and the weak, we've been told over and over, serve people, uh, you know, put yourself last, don't be, don't be selfish, live the way that we're supposed to live. So there's no better example of a servant than Jesus himself, who although he was perfect, he paid the price for the sins of the many. Just like he, he made it, the, the quote there in verse 3, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus didn't deserve reproach. He didn't deserve punishment. He didn't deserve crucifixion. He did not deserve to pay the price of sin, but he did it anyway because he was a servant. And so that's important for us. So although Paul had never visited the Roman church when he writes this letter, it's very possible he knew that there was some kind of division going on. And in the first century, it's not hard to guess what that division probably was. There were Jewish Christians and there were Gentile Christians. And if you look at the nature of the things that he's been discussing, food and days and, and, and use of wine, things like that, this is probably Jews and Gentiles not necessarily getting along. Probably some report that he received. And so here he starts in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. So that's going to identify the Jews. He became a servant to the circumcised. So that starts this conversation. <coughs> so if there was that division... That was a division that probably existed in virtually every first century church because you had Jews, because Paul, he went to the synagogue first where the Jews were and taught them the gospel. Some people probably got saved and then some people probably tried to get him killed. So he would leave and then he would, he would begin to spread that message among the Gentiles. And so you had a church from the very beginning that had people of a Jewish background and people of a Jewish or a Gentile background and they came together and their worlds collided and it didn't always fit neatly and nicely because they were, there were two different kinds of people totally different cultures, totally different moral values, totally different everything, just, just hitting together. How do you make that work? Well, exactly what Paul's been saying. And so he's talking to the Roman church here about these kinds of issues and to help them understand, to help them understand why they're supposed to be unified. He goes through a list of Old Testament Bible verses, but he's explaining how Jesus has brought everything together. So to help the group understand, um, or, or each group understand the other, Paul strings together these Old Testament verses to reveal God's eternal plan for salvation. And what's the main point here? Jesus became a servant to the Jews to fulfill the promises made to the patriarchs is the first part. But we see that where he says here, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So that's the first part. So all the promises that God made to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus. But why? Look at verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he goes on to as it is written. So God's fulfilling the promises to the Jews. And this has been his plan from the very beginning. I'm going to work in you. I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to do miracles here and the whole world's going to see and the whole world is going to worship me because of it. That's what God's been saying all along. And so why wouldn't Jews and Gentiles get along? We're all just recipients of his grace. Why wouldn't we get along? But that is, that is what the point, that's the point that he's about to make. So Jesus was made a servant for this purpose. 
God's never failed to keep a promise. And Jesus completely fulfills the promises made to the patriarchs long ago, uh, that in keeping these promises to the patriarchs, God has also redeemed the Gentiles at the same time so that they all may give him glory. So here's the, here's the, the main point here. The plan of salvation for the Jews includes the Gentiles, and it always has. It's always been his plan to include the Gentiles, to save them all. So let's look through these verses. I won't take long with either any of them, but I do want to point out what they are. So the first quotation is from Psalm 1849, uh, and in that the psalmist proclaims that he will praise the name of God. Not a big surprise. He always praises the name of God. He's a psalm writer. That's what he does. But he says, Therefore I will sing your praises among the Gentiles, or among the nations, would be the same word there. So what that means is that not only is he going to sing in the courts of the temple or among the Israelites, but he's going to go out into the Gentiles and sing the praises of God. That is worship, but that is also evangelism. So that's way, way back. So why is Paul doing this? He's saying, I want to take you way, way back, show you David, show you that David was already looking towards sharing God with the other people, the Gentiles, the people outside of the family of God, even at that time. So that's important. But let's go further. Um, in, in the second passage, uh, the second passage comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, uh, no, 34, 43. And Paul uses it to point out the call to the Gentile to worship along with the Jews. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. With his people we are to worship. So we are, for the most part, Gentile. Any, any true-blooded Jew in here? No. So we're Gentiles. So we are to worship with the Jews. We are to worship with the people of God. His chosen people. We are to worship with them. That comes from Deuteronomy. That's Moses. It's Moses saying that. So that takes you from David. We step way back to Moses. And Moses is already calling the Gentiles to worship. He's already calling them, worship with us. Celebrate with us this God that we have. And so that definitely speaks to unity. The third passage, that comes from Psalm 117, and it's simply a call to worship for the Gentiles. Look, he says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. So there is one God. One God, not just for the Jews, but one God for all people, all mankind. We're all to worship Him. If there is one God, there should be one people. There should be unity. That is what he's getting at with this. And then finally, Isaiah 11.10, it speaks of Jesus who will arise uh, and rule the Gentiles and to give them hope. It says the root of Jesse, obviously Jesus, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So the Messiah of the Israelites is the Messiah of the Gentiles. The one who would deliver the Israelites is the one who will deliver the Gentiles. He is our Messiah as well. He is our Savior. He is our Deliverer. He unifies us all. The divisions between the Jews and the Gentiles were vast. Yes, there was cultural divisions. The Jews had a very particular culture and they didn't mix with anybody. There were religious distinctions. Judaism was unlike any other world religion at that given time. There were political distinctions. There was no more fiercely patriotic people than the Israelites. I don't even think the Romans could hold a candle to how 
desperately the Israelites wanted to live in their land and have their own king. You think hot politics are a hot button issue now? Go back then and start talking about you know, Roman rule in Judea. You would not find any friends if you started talking in favor of that. There, there was every kind of division. There was racial. Every kind of division that we would think of today, it existed in each and every church. Can you imagine worshiping with people and, and, and there might be someone in the other pew that doesn't think anything like you think. They, they, they don't have any... It'd be like somebody rooting for a Pac-12 team out here. You see what I'm saying? I mean, it would be so radically different that we wouldn't know what to do with this person. I'm sorry for your loss. That would be all we could do. But think about it. God brought all of them together. Put them all together and said, hey, we are one body. We are one church. And we have one mission. If Jesus brought all of that together, is there any division now that should separate us? Should anybody's opinion separate us? Should anybody's conviction separate us? Should anybody's political opinions, racial status, anything that, 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 is, that is the way that God made them, is any of those things something that should separate us? Absolutely not. We should be unified. Submitted to Scripture, submitted to Christ, loving one another, selflessly acting and serving one voice praising the Lord. From the very beginning, God had planned for Jesus to unify all the people. So this wraps up Paul's um, discussion of the strong and the weak. We move on after this. Um, and so he sums everything up with a little prayer that he says for his readers. That's in verse 13. May the God of hope... And that's a wonderful way to think about God. Because... If he was a God of plenty, what about the poor? If he was the God of health, what about the sick? If he was a God of the strong, what about the weak? But we all can hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. There's another thing the world shouldn't be able to get at. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, yet another thing the world cannot take. So we think about the way the world is now, and we say, oh, it's so bad, and there's so many bad people doing so many bad things. Well, that's the way the world's always been. If you read the Bible, you find out it's always been full of bad people doing bad things. It's the same. But you can't take away the hope that God gives you. You can't take away the joy that God gives you. You can't take away the peace that God gives you. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing... So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. It is the one thing that we can never have enough of, and the world should never be able to take away. The only reason we would ever lose hope in God is if He failed to keep a promise. And that's never happened, and it never will happen. God keeps His Word. So why be unified? So that with one voice we can glorify the God that gives us hope. You know, with all this talk about hope, it should give us a hint that the world's not always going to be easy. The path that we walk will not always be kind. Not everybody's going to be our friend. But we hang on and we trust in God because in Him is our hope. 
So let's conclude this. Now we understand that a church unified by obedience to Scripture and our status in Christ provides us hope. It gives us a reason to believe. If God can create heaven on earth, which is the, what I imagine, everybody serving one another is heaven on earth. If God can create heaven on earth in a church body, then certainly He can deliver us to heaven in, in, at the end of our lives. We know that the enemy will take nearly everything that we hold dear. Our loved ones, our possessions. They could come take our building. They could come take anything. God protects us, but there may be a day when those hedges are gone. The enemy can have everything, but the enemy cannot have our hope. We know that we can keep fighting so long as we have our hope. That hope will remain as long as we are obedient to the Word and considerate to one another. We submit to Jesus, we will always have hope because He is coming. He will return. He will finish what He started. So what's our role? What's my role? What's your role? We must do our part to ensure the unity of the body of Christ by showing grace and living a selfless life. What do we go out and do? We show grace to one another. We live understanding that everybody's different. Everybody is not going to see eye to eye with us. You know, I don't watch the news much. I read articles, I see things. And there's a lot of times because of, I guess, what I already have clicked on, I see more stories about churches and Christians and their interaction with the world than I do other things. We don't always get it right. And, and in fact, it's rare that I see a news story where we did get it right. We're, we're, we're hostile. We're combative in a lot of cases. We're, we're, we're overly aggressive. Church, live a selfless life. Put others first. Cling to Jesus Christ and know that that's going to give you a hope that will abide in the darkest of days and it will bring you to the brightest of mornings. If we can be unified serving Christ, we will have that hope and we will see God do amazing things in this life or in the next. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time to gather together. I thank you for your word that gives us hope. I thank you for each person that's here. I thank you for the unity that you've already given us. And I pray that it can grow. That we can come to love each other and appreciate each other, especially our differences. <coughs> I pray that our doors are always open to welcome a new person in. I pray that in everything that we do, we seek first to submit to your word, and then second, we seek to submit to each other so that we can live in harmony and peace. And Lord, I pray that everything that we do, every breath that we take, every action that we take brings glory and honor to your name. Father, you have given us a gift that nothing else can give us, and that is hope. We know that Jesus is coming back. And I pray that we are willing and ready to serve together in the trenches until he returns. It's in his name we pray. Amen.